Well, good morning. So, I don't want to give away what we're going to talk about today, but I just want to say that um, I was we were singing and just looking around, saw different things, saw a baby dancing and, and someone holding that baby and then others raising their hands in worship and um, people greeting each other at the door as they were coming in and uh, joy. I saw joy. And, you know, today we're going to be talking about discouragement. And <clears throat> aren't you excited? <laughs> Got a discouraging sermon for you today. So, but I was just thinking that the whole time, like how much the need for us to be together, you know, that what a cure for discouragement to be with others. Um, and to see their love for the Lord, to see their love for each other, to feel their love for you and, and you getting to express that love for them. Uh, it's important to gather, isn't it? And uh, so anyway, don't want to give away everything for today's message, but um, that really hit me this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, man, we are so grateful to be here. Um, I just thank you that we're not alone. Uh, that we have brothers and sisters. And, you know, when we think about the fact that discouragement comes, and we'll talk more about that from your word this morning, but it's so good to know that, that not only do we have you, which is enough, but you saw fit to place us in a family, and we have each other. And I just want to thank you for my brothers and sisters here at, at this local body, this this gathering Fayette Baptist Church. Thank you for the way they love each other. Thank you for the way they love me and my family. Thank you for um, the way that they love you. And I get to see that. And, and uh, God, we pray that this morning as we open your word, wow, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've, you've, you saw fit again to, to speak uh, to other brothers and sisters and you moved in their lives, and, and then these words were written down in a way that we would be able to uh, learn more about who you are and your will for our lives. Thank you for that, and I pray that you'd speak to us by your Spirit as we open your word this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, <clears throat> all right, how many of you have ever felt discouraged? Okay. There was a lot of hands that didn't go up. So you either know something that I don't know, or you're just not participating. I'm not going to call you a liar, because you're just like, you were raising your hand on the inside. But uh, let's talk for a minute about discouragement, okay? Uh, and I want to hear from you. So this is going to be a little bit of audience participation. We'll do it one at a time, so you just raise your hand and I'll, and I'll call on you. But... Last time I said, what's your favorite superhero? And I didn't get anything out of it. So, so, so we're going we're gonna to do this. So let's, let's hear from you. What are some of the reasons why we become discouraged? Let me, let me see your hands. Not all at once. Okay, go ahead, Joyce. Yeah. Okay, so if you didn't hear, she said, when, when I don't see people I'm praying for, people I want to be saved, coming to know the Lord as quickly as I would like them to. It's discouraging. Good. What else? Jen. I don't want to say no. I'm so good. It's so spiritual. Um, but we 
Okay, so um, she said she doesn't want to say it after, after that one because that was so spiritually strong an answer. My wife would like to share. When you get hurt physically, when you, when you have an injury, that is discouraging. Yeah, good. What else? What is it? Disease. So injury and then also disease. It's discouraging when we get sick and ill. Yeah, right here, Chris. Yeah, when people walk away from the faith, they grew up in the faith, but then they, they walk away from the faith. It's discouraging. Sure. Bethany. Being misunderstood. Ah, being misunderstood. It's discouraging, right? That's not what I meant. I'm misunderstood. Yeah, go ahead. Right here, guy. Ah, good. Good. He said, when I'm not reaching out to the Lord. When I'm not reaching out to Him, I become discouraged. Yeah. Go ahead, Becky. Negative feedback from our peers. Ooh, negative feedback from my peers, right? That's discouraged. Anybody ever been discouraged by negative feedback? <laughs> nice. I'll try not to do that this morning. What else? <laughs> a couple, couple more. A couple more. Right here, Jerry. Unmet expectations. Yeah, unmet expectations. Wow. That's a biggie, right? Jerry read my notes. Awesome. So, good. Right here, Tony. When you are, when you are called self-righteous and judgmental, trying to, to explain the gospel to people who believe in God, but aren't willing to hear the truth. Yeah. So he said, when, when you're labeled as self-righteous or judgmental when you're trying to explain the truth of the gospel, right? You're trying to just convey the truth, but you're, you come across as, uh, in their eyes as being judgmental or self-righteous, yeah. Being misunderstood, again, yeah. Anybody else? Right here, Angela. When those who do obvious evil appear to prosper and fully get away with it. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good one. So when people who are doing evil seem to get away with it and even prosper. That's so discouraging. Again, she's been reading ahead, looking at my notes. That's the danger. So I told you we were doing, you know, 1 Kings chapter 19. So you guys are all read up. You could probably come up here and just share, right? Who wants to? Anybody? No? Okay. These are great. I mean, there's so many reasons why we get discouraged, right? And it's pretty common experience. Most of us have experienced it. And sometimes we get discouraged, right, for like really simple things, right? Like, like the weather can be discouraging, right? If it's been raining a lot, you might get discouraged by the weather. Or, or when your plans get changed. You never had that discouragement happen? I mean, it's not like the end of the world, but it's frustrating, and then you get discouraged. But usually, usually discouragement settles in after something maybe a little bit more serious, like some kind of a loss, you know, whether it, maybe it's the loss of a job, uh, or it could be, as it's already mentioned today, loss of health, whether it's an injury or, or sickness, that's discouraging, right? How about the loss of a relationship? You know, relationships come and go sometimes, right? And, and it hurts, and sometimes we find ourselves discouraged when those relationships end. And of course, the, probably the most painful one I can think of is, is the, the discouragement that settles in after the death of someone that you love right? 
It's a pretty common thing to enter into a time of discouragement that may even lead to its cousin, like despair or even a deep depression, right? These things settled in. But have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that times of discouragement, great discouragement, are often experienced right after times of great success? Like you're coming off a mountaintop moment and then bam, you're discouraged. And you're like, I don't understand. Why am I feeling this way? I remember the first time that I returned home from a a short-term mission trip. First time I ever went. It was in uh, the country of Peru. And I was so excited. I was so excited about all the things that God was showing me during the trip and the way that he had opened my eyes to certain things in my own life and in the church where I was serving. And just I was so excited to, to make changes and implement things. But it wasn't very long after I returned that discouragement settled in. Like I couldn't make the changes as quickly as I wanted. And it was much more difficult than I had expected. And that mountaintop experience soon led to a discouraging valley. This is such a common experience, at least with mission trips, that that there are entire devotionals that are written to help people navigate through the process of re-entering their culture. We actually use those uh, devotions for our teams when we travel. Well, over the last two weeks, we have been looking at the life of Elijah the prophet. And each week, I've, really, I've been trying to really emphasize, probably to the point where it's annoying, the idea that we need to be careful not to put Elijah up on, on a pedestal, right? We, we, we don't want to put him up here like he's somehow superhuman. And each week, as we've considered all the miraculous things that the Lord has accomplished through this prophet... We've been reminding ourselves of what James wrote in James chapter 5, 17, that Elijah was, was a man just like us, that he was human. He had a sin nature just like us. Well, this morning, as we now turn our attention to 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to get a better glimpse at the humanity of this remarkable man of God. We're going we're to see that Elijah also struggled with discouragement. Just, just like us. My hope is that you don't walk out of here discouraged, <laughs> but rather that, that we'll become more aware of some of the factors that led to Elijah's discouragement so that we can be aware of those factors in our own lives and be better you know, equipped to address those factors. Now, before we pick up our text, some of you are already reading ahead. I saw that. Um, as we came to the close of of chapter 18, we kind of left off the story, and Elijah was running, right? He was running by foot to Jezreel from the Mount Carmel uh, mountain range. It was, you know, depending on where he was located on that range, it was like a 15 to 25-mile jog. Um, But it, it, it had been a long day, Right? For Elijah, It wasn't just that he just got done running 15 to 25 miles. Elijah had been through a long, long day there on Mount Carmel. You know, he had experienced an amazing victory, an amazing mountaintop, literally a mountaintop moment there, um, you know, with the defeating of the prophets of Baal, right? 450 prophets of Baal. God answered Elijah's prayers and, and, and fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering. 
After that, Elijah had the people round up all of the prophets, right, and bring them down to the brook Kishon, right? And there, Elijah put them to death in accordance with what God had said in Deuteronomy chapter 13 on how to deal with false prophets. I mean, just think about that alone. 450 people that that Elijah put to death that day. And then after that, he climbed back to the top of the mountain and he goes to prayer. He prays fervently, right? Seven times for the Lord to bring the rain. And God brings the rain and then Elijah takes off running to Jezreel. I mean, this has been a big, big day for him. So as he's running off to Jezreel, the chapter came to a close. Now, for two chapters, we've been seeing how God has been moving in in miraculous ways through Elijah's life. And as this chapter comes to a close, Elijah is probably feeling just victorious, right? Life is great. Cannot believe all that God has done. This is a mountaintop moment. But sometimes our times of greatest discouragement are experienced right after these Moments of great success or achievement. So let's just pick up now in in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. 1 Kings 19, verse 1 says this. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Now, when Ahab came back and told his wife all that had taken place on Mount Carmel, you would think, you would think that Jezebel would have been converted to Judaism on the spot, right? I mean, think about it. The drought was over. It's raining, right? And 450 prophets of Baal squared off against one prophet of Yahweh and only one prophet is left standing. The, the odds were so stacked in, in, in her favor, right? I mean, they believed that, that Baal was the, the god of the, the storm, right? The rain god. The odds were start, stacked in their, in their favor, but, but they lost. And so you would think that she would be converted, but she wasn't. And rather than repent, Jezebel becomes enraged and she sends a death threat to Elijah. Verse 3 says, Then he was afraid. Not, the, not the, what we expect to see, right? I mean, this guy has just squared off with 450 prophets, right? We've seen so many powerful moves that all of a sudden it's like, what? He was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. When, when Elijah receives word of Jezebel's threat, he takes off running. The text says he was afraid. He arose and he ran for his life. Now, I want you to see what's not in this verse, in verse 3. Verse 3 does not say, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Arise and go to Beersheba. It's weird, right? Why is that weird? Well, because it's a major change from everything that we've seen so far in chapter 17 and chapter 18. In chapter 17, verse 2, we see, And the word of the Lord came to him, 
Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. Then in chapter 17, verse 8, we read, Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, Arise, go to Zarephath. In chapter 18, verse 1, we're told, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab. And then finally, in chapter 18, verse 46, where we ended last week, we read that the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. See, up to this point, the text has made it very clear that Elijah had been moved either by the hand or by the word of God. And now suddenly, those words are not there. And whereas before, Elijah walked confidently in faith, and we've been emphasizing that over and over, he's walking confidently in faith, now we see him doing what? He's running in fear. Instead of looking upward to God in faith, he looked outward at the circumstances, right? And he turned inward in fear. So the first factor that I see in Elijah's life, which may have led to his great discouragement, is this. Elijah had taken his eyes off of the Lord. Up to this point, he had been looking to the Lord for direction. He'd looked to the Lord for provision and protection. And you know, this should serve as a reminder to all of us that no matter how greatly we have seen God move in the past, there is always a temptation for us to take our eyes off of Him and to begin moving in either self-reliance or in fear. But there's a second factor that I want us to see here, which may have contributed to Elijah's discouragement. Elijah had unmet expectations. Somebody said that earlier. Things did not turn out how he had hoped. After everything that took place on Mount Carmel, Elijah expected a certain response, right? But when he received word of Jezebel's threat, he realized that his hopes for Israel's repentance and for Israel's national revival had not happened. His expectations hadn't been met. His life was still in danger. And so rather than turn to the Lord in faith, he ran in fear. We need to be aware We need to be aware of the expectations that we have, don't we? Unmet expectations often lead to great discouragement. And here's the thing. Our responsibility is to be faithful to to, to what God is calling us to do, right? The results are up to him. Elijah was responsible to do what God told him to do. Go to see Ahab. Do this. Do that. But the results were not up to Elijah, were they? They were up to the Lord. And Elijah thought he knew what the result would be. And when it didn't happen, he became discouraged. Text says in verse 3, He ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. So he takes off running uh, from Jezreel. And he flees all the way to Beersheba. I look at that. You just look at the movement in gray there. You can see where he's been moving around. He's kind of been hanging out there in the north the whole time. And all of a sudden, he takes his eyes off the Lord, and where does he go? He is chucking it, right? He is huffing his way all the way down south. He runs through Jerusalem all the way to the southern end uh, of, of, of Israel, to, to, well, to the southern end of Judah, to Beer, 
Beersheba. And when he arrives there, the text says that he left his servant there. By the way, that's about 100 miles, um, which, you know, for us, you know, yeah, get in a car and drive 100 miles, no big deal, but that's a long ways when you're, when you're on foot or maybe catching a donkey or something. It's, it's, that's a long ways to travel. Now, when we see the word wilderness here, we need to erase the, the picture that we have of the thick forests of, of Maine, right? Because when we see wilderness, we picture the wilderness here. Um, Elijah is traveling into a, a desert area. This part of, of Israel is a desert. And so after leaving his servant in Beersheba, he travels a day's journey, it says, out into the wilderness. It's about 15 to 20 miles is a day's journey. That's about how far they would travel on foot. So he travels 15 or 20 miles away from Beersheba into the wilderness. And there's a couple of views from uh, the site of Beersheba uh, for you to see. Not exactly the main wilderness, right? So... He gets into the desert, and, and it says that he takes rest under a broom tree. Um, this is a, it's a desert bush that grows in, in, in Israel, and it, it can reach heights of 10 to 12 feet, 10 to 12 feet tall. Well, verse 4 continue, continues, it says, And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now. O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah is so discouraged, he's so depressed that he wants to die. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever felt that way, but you know if you've been there. So discouraged that you just, God, just take my life. I don't want to go on anymore. And so rather than presenting himself as an instrument in the Lord's hand saying, God, use my life, Elijah asked God to take his life. He says, I'm, I'm no better. I'm no better than all of my forefathers. They're dead and gone. I might as well be too. Verse 5 says, And he laid down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And it's funny, we read that, it's sort of like, big deal. You know, like, in Elijah's life, it is sort of like no big deal, right? And he's so used to all these miracles, that it's like, oh yeah, there's an angel showed up and made me breakfast, you know. <laughs> Whatever, you know, just another day, you know. But, you know, when I read that verse, one word, one word comes to mind. Exhaustion. Elijah was exhausted. And so I think a third factor which may have led to Elijah's great discouragement and depression was that he was exhausted. If you think back over all that Elijah had been through, especially in chapter 18 at Mount Carmel, think about all of the emotional highs and lows that he had been through. Think about the physical drain, just the physical drain of what I just described on, in chapter 18, you know, going up to Mount Carmel, coming down, slaughtering 450 of the prophets, then going back up and praying and then running to Jezreel, and then the next day trucking it and heading off for a 100-mile journey. The guy is exhausted. He's physically worn out. I think also he was spiritually and emotionally exhausted. 
You know, he felt like his mission had failed. God didn't have any use for him anymore. So much so that he leaves his servant back in Beersheba. I don't need him anymore. I'm going to go out in the desert and ask the Lord to take my life. And I believe that one of the reasons why times of great discouragement are so often experienced after times of great victory is because of all the physical, emotional, and spiritual energy that we expend during those times. We're exhausted. We're just wiped out. Think back to my example about the missions trip. How how much physical, emotional, and spiritual energy do we pour into everything that goes into a missions trip? Or how about preparing for some big event? And it might be a great event. It might be a wedding. It might be a graduation. It might be... But it's exhausting, right? We're wiped out. By the time it's over, we've got nothing left. Please tell me that I'm not the only one who's felt that, right? You've all felt that. Brothers and sisters, we need to beware of exhaustion. We need to beware of burnout. You know, we all want to be used by God, right? But we need to understand that if we get to the point where we're burned out and exhausted, we're not much use anymore, are we? We need to pay attention to our physical, our emotional, and our spiritual health. You know, I've found in my own life, and and certainly from, from talking to others, that people tend to make really bad decisions when they're exhausted. You find that to be true in your life? Elijah is wiped out. And so after crying out to God, asking the Lord to take his life, it says Elijah drifted off to sleep. And I just, I love the way that the Lord responds to Elijah in his time of great discouragement and pain. The Lord just lets him rest for a while. And then... God sends an angel to wake him up and to provide a warm meal for his tired servant. It's amazing. See, the Lord knows what Elijah needs. He needs food. He needs water. And he needs rest. Verse 6 says that after he ate, he went back to sleep. Elijah is just simply exhausted, and the Lord gave him this time to rest. Verse 7 says, And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. God's about to bring him on a journey that's going to be way too great for him. And he arose and he ate and he drank. And he went in the strength of that food, get this, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. That must have been quite a meal. You know? (laughs) I'm just saying, I can't go four hours without, without eating, right? But things are getting really, really interesting here in the text. After refueling his tired prophet, the Lord leads Elijah on a journey to Horeb, the Mount of God. The first thing you need to know is that Horeb is another name that is used in the Scripture for Mount Sinai, the mountain where Moses met with the Lord and received the Ten Commandments. This is a pretty special place in Scripture Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Elijah is on the the way to the same place where God met with, with Moses. And in the same way that Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai, as he received instructions from the Lord, Elijah fasted for 40 days and 40 nights as God was preparing him for further instructions. Elijah would have been aware of this. You know, he, he's making that connection. You know, Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before he got instructions. God is 
inviting me to fast for 40 days and 40 nights before I receive further instructions. The second thing that I think is really interesting here is, the, is that this journey from Beersheba to Horeb took Elijah 40 days to complete. 40-day journey. Now, the distance for this trip is about 200 miles, about 200 miles, a distance which would ordinarily take about 10 to 14 days. So why so long? Why so long? Well, it's interesting that God is allowing Elijah to wander through the same desert for 40 days that he allowed the Israelites to wander through for 40 years. And why did they wander through that desert? Because they didn't trust the Lord. Remember that? And now Elijah, he's sitting here on the edge of his own sort of break of faith, isn't he? He's lost his faith. He's, he, he's struggling. And God takes him on a journey and allows him to wander in that same desert for 40 days. And this is, again, not something that would have been lost on Elijah. God is really working on his heart. And so after 40 days and 40 nights of wandering, Elijah arrives at, at Horeb. Verse 9 says, There he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> you were in Jezreel, like 300 miles away. What are you doing here, Elijah? And I love the fact, I love the fact that God invites Elijah to pour out what's on his heart. What are you doing here? It's not like God doesn't know, right? Please tell me, I really want to know why you're here, you know? But he invites Elijah to verbalize what is on his heart. You know, we should do the same thing, you know? When we find ourselves starting to feel exhausted, frustrated, tired, confused, discouraged, before we get to the point where we're ready to throw in the towel, how about going to the Lord and telling him what's on our hearts? The Lord invites us to do this. What are you doing here, Nate? What are you doing here, Dan? What are you doing here, Bethany? What's going on? What's on your heart? Talk to me. The Lord invites Elijah to pour out his heart to him. Verse 10 says, He, Elijah, said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Sounds like what somebody else shared over here, I think, earlier. The, the idea that, that, that they're getting away with something here. It's not right. It's not fair. They should not be getting away with this. I've been, I've been so committed to your cause, Lord. And they've all turned their backs on you. They've killed your prophets, and I'm the only one who's left. Now, this, of course, isn't true, right? I mean, what about what we read last week? Obadiah. Remember Obadiah? Yeah. And how about the hundred prophets of God that Obadiah had hid in the caves? Yeah, what about them? But Elijah says, I'm the only one who's left, and they're trying to kill me too. You ever felt that way? Like you're the only one. I'm all alone. <laughs> Nobody cares but me. I'm the last of God's faithful. 
It may not have been true, but it's how he truly felt, right? Appreciate his honesty. Verse 11 says, and he said, and this is God. God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. And the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. And he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? What an experience that must have been for Elijah. Wind so strong that it tore the mountains and broke the rocks. An earthquake shaking the ground where he was standing and fire coming down from heaven. Maybe similar to what he had experienced on Mount Carmel. But here's the thing. God wasn't in the wind. God wasn't in the earthquake. And God wasn't in the fire. He's in control of all of them, right? But God was present in the quiet whisper. And here's where I believe we see God exposing a fourth factor which led to Elijah's discouragement. Elijah was so accustomed to looking for God's power and God's presence in the miraculous, he needed to be reminded that God is still powerful and God is still present in the quiet whispers. God was working all around him. I'm the only one left. God was working all around him, not just in the miraculous, visible demonstrations. And this was an important lesson for Elijah, because he was used to seeing God move in in mighty and miraculous ways. He had seen God withhold rain for three and a half years. And on Elijah's prayer, the rain returned. Wow, powerful. He saw ravens delivering food to him every day, twice a day, while he lived by the brook Cherith. He saw an unending supply of flour and oil that every day there was more flour and more oil. Miraculously, God provided for him in Zarephath by the hands of the Gentile widow. He saw a young boy brought back to life after he prayed to God. He saw God bring down fire on Mount Carmel and consume the offering that he had drenched with water. You know, Elijah was used to seeing the Lord move in mighty and miraculous ways. But what he needed to understand was that God was also working in ways that we often miss because of our focus on the more visible and exciting expressions of God's power at work. Elijah thought he was the only one left. Nobody else is out calling down fire. Nobody else is bringing people back from the dead. I'm the only one. But as we soon find out, God was working in the hearts of people that Elijah wasn't even aware of. You know, sometimes it's so easy for us to get up, you know, caught up searching for powerful moves of God 
when really it's his still small voice speaking to our hearts that we really need to hear. And I say that, and, and I recognize that, that some are like, well, oh, so you don't believe that God still does miracles? No, of course I do. God does miracles all the time. And we just heard about one through the prayer chain this week, right? The tumor was left in the brain of this boy Judah. Two days later, it's gone. It's gone. The doctor said, we left, we left it there because it was too dangerous to get it. God's people prayed and God removed the tumor. I mean, that's amazing, right? It's a miracle. It happens. But you need to understand it's just as much a miracle every time God speaks to your heart as you open his word. When God speaks to you in his still, small voice and you hear the Spirit speaking to your heart, that's a miracle. It's powerful. And God is present. Let's not get so focused on God working through the wind, the earthquake, and the fire that we miss his gentle whisper. Verse 13 says that when Elijah heard the whisper and he recognized the holiness of this moment, that he, he wrapped his face in his cloak as a sign of humility, and he walked to the entrance of the cave to stand before the Lord. And once again, the Lord asks Elijah the same question that he asked him before. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gives the same answer as before. I really hoped, you know, when you read this, it's like every time I read it, I'm like, I mean, this time, the second time, he's going to get it, you know? He's going to say, oh, I get it, the wind, the fire, the earthquake. Oh, okay, what you're trying to show me is, the, okay, got it. And he's going to give a different answer. But he doesn't. Verse 14, it means like verbatim. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I love how patient God is with Elijah. How patient he is with us, too, right? After this powerful demonstration with the wind, the earthquake, the fire, and the gentle whisper, God asks him the same question, and Elijah gives him the same response. And so now, the Lord is going to shift gears. He's going to encourage his prophet in three ways. Three ways. First, he's going to give Elijah a mission. Verse 15 says, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you, will, uh, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. The Lord gives Elijah a mission and tells him that Hazael is going to be anointed as the new king of Syria, Jehu is anointed as the new king of Israel, and Elisha is going to be anointed as the prophet who will take his place. God says, Elijah, you need to get back to work. You need to get back to work. And this was great news for Elijah because it meant that he was wrong. It meant that he was wrong, that God wasn't done, all wasn't lost. God still had plans for his people. And so the first thing God does is he encourages his, 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 his prophet Elijah by giving him a mission. The second thing he does is he assures Elijah that justice will be served. Verse 17 says, And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Now the Lord tells Elijah here that judgment will be executed against these leaders. Ahab and Jezebel had not won. They didn't win. And God's judgment for Israel's idolatry was not complete. 
And this was encouraging to, to Elijah because he was jealous for the worship of God. This promise of God's judgment against those who had abandoned the Lord was an encouragement to Elijah. And then finally, God encouraged his prophet by revealing that Elijah was not alone. Elijah was convinced that he was the only one who was left. And God says, you you have no idea. Verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah found out that he was not alone. There were 7,000 followers of Yahweh who had not bowed to Baal. Now, they may, not have been, they may not have been praying for droughts or praying for rain, right? Calling down fire from heaven or raising dead kids to life. But there were 7,000 others whose hearts belonged to the Lord. And while Elijah was, was busy with all the mighty and the miraculous, the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, there were 7,000 others who had responded to God's still small voice. Elijah had no idea how much God had been working in ways that he had not seen. What an incredible encouragement that was to him. To know that he was not alone as he left Horeb to get back to work. Verse 19. So he departed from there and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Other translations say his mantle. I think that's a funnier picture. Because yeah, I always picture, whenever I read that, when he cast his mantle, I always picture the mantle over the fireplace. It's like, sure. Sorry. It wasn't his mantle. It was his cloak. Verse 20, And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he, Elijah, said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh and the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people. And they ate. Then he arose and he went after Elijah and assisted him. I don't want to get into too much about Elisha uh, at this point. Um, Perhaps another time. Um, but let me just go ahead and briefly highlight what's, what's happening in these final verses, and then we'll bring our, our time to a close. Elijah goes, and he finds Elisha, whose name means, my God is salvation. And Elijah places his cloak onto Elisha. Now, the cloak was a, was a symbol of Elijah's prophetic ministry. And so by placing it on Elisha, he was... He was calling Elisha to join him in this prophetic ministry. And Elisha does. He quickly responds. He says he left the oxen and he asked Elijah for permission to say goodbye to his parents before leaving to follow the prophet. He was like, yeah, I'm in. I'm, I'm in. But is it okay if first can I go back and I, can I say goodbye to my mom and my dad and you know my friends? And uh, Elijah says something interesting. He says, go back again, for what have I done to you? And it feels kind of like a confusing response, right? Like, if that, someone said that to me, I'd be like, 
Yeah, that's not really clear. <laughs> so is that a yes or a no? I'm not really sure what that means. And that's because I'm reading that through a 21st century American lens, right? Apparently, this was an idiomatic expression, which means something like, do as you please. Or, what have I done to stop you? Go ahead. So Elisha goes back to his family and kills his oxen. Which, by the way, is kind of like him saying, like, I'm all in, right? This is his livelihood. He says, you're not going to need that anymore. They're done, right? He kills his auction, oxen, and, and, and he uses that meat to share as a last meal with his friends and family. And then he says goodbye, and he leaves to follow Elijah. I just love this picture in my mind as I see Elisha chasing after Elijah and these two guys heading off to do this prophetic work and this ministry together. Because, you know, when, again, I shared in week one, when I think of sort of my biblical heroes, Elijah is definitely one. But then there's Elisha. <laughs> Right? And, and just these two amazing uh, men of God, totally all in. Let's close with this. Elijah was human, right? Just like, I mean, I think because of chapter 19, it really settles in, right? We, we can relate to that Elijah. It's hard to relate to the one calling down fire from heaven. It's hard to relate to the one who prayed and a dead kid comes back to life. But we can relate to this Elijah, can't we? But it's really interesting, though. It says he was a man just like us. So while we can relate to this, I think it's, God wants to do amazing things through our lives, too. It's not just the discouraging Elijah that, that we get to relate to. We get to relate to the guy who does amazing things for the Lord as he walks in obedience to God. I don't know what God might do through your life. I believe he can do miracles through your life as you walk in obedience and are being led by Him. I love that we get to see His humanity fully on display. But as we close, with this chapter, chapter 19, where we've talked about the factors that led to Elijah's discouragement, I want to just remind us that he struggled at least for one reason, because he took his eyes off the Lord. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord. You know? Secondly, he struggled with, with physical, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion. And in his exhausted state, like us, he wasn't making good decisions. You know? We need to be aware of that. You start being tempted to make these radical decisions, right? It's like, wait a minute, I'm exhausted. Is this really a decision that I should be making right now? Or do I need to take some time and rest? Like, I need to get quiet before the Lord. Rest. Make sure I'm taking care of myself physically, emotionally, spiritually, before I make these decisions. Third, he, uh, he, had, he had unmet expectations, right? Right? And we need to be aware of those unmet expectations in our lives. Because I think the problem is, we think we know what the outcome needs to be. And all we're responsible to do is walk in obedience to the Lord. And when things don't go as planned, we can trust that God is still in control. Right? He's still sovereign. He still has this. And then finally, you know, Elijah struggled to see how God was working behind the scenes. 
He was so focused on the miraculous and powerful expressions of God that he missed the way that God was moving in hearts through his still small voice. He needed to hear that still small voice in his own life. And so do we. By the way, can I just say, like, talk about miracle of miracles. How about every time that still small voice speaks to the heart of someone who doesn't know him yet and they respond and they give their life to Jesus? That's quite a miracle, isn't it? Every single time. It's fun to see the big, powerful, miraculous things that God does. We love getting a, 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 a praise report on the prayer chain about a, a, of a tumor being removed. And we should celebrate that. We should celebrate all the small ways that God speaks to our hearts every single day. And be thankful for those things too. Elijah was human, just like us. And my prayer is that we would learn from his mistakes... See, he made some mistakes for your benefit and follow his example of faith and devotion to the Lord. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your servant Elijah. What a powerful example he is. Human like us, he, he had his struggles. Thank you so much for the way you gently gently restored him. You met him where he was at. You provided for his needs. And you sent him back out on mission. God, we thank you for all the times that you do the same for us. You don't give up on us. We thank you for that. God, I thank you for Elijah's examples of faith, too. The way that he powerfully, you know, just walked in obedience to you so many times. You did amazing things through his life. And I believe, God, that you want to do amazing things through my life and through the lives of my brothers and sisters here. Help us to say yes to each time you lead us by your word and by your hand. We want to be fully devoted to following you, Jesus. God, help us to lay down our expectations. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to be aware of our, our, our physical, emotional, and spiritual health. And help us to celebrate and look for you, not just in the mighty ways, but in the small ways too. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. And we pray that you go with us as we leave this place. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.